Welcome to the Highway to Well. Today we're talking with George Pfeiffer, who has a lifetime legacy and history in the worksite health promotion field, but has turned his direction towards the value of sport and play in our development and growth and well-being. He recently published a book called High Play, Being Above the Game. And today we'll spend a lot of time talking about the inspiration behind the book, his experiences as an athlete, and what he's learned through sport. And we'll share our common threads that we've learned through sport and play and how that has impacted our well-being and our vision and view of the world today. Thank you again for listening. Let's get on the highway to well. Welcome back to the Highway to Well. Today we're talking with George Pfeiffer, who has a lifetime legacy in history in the worksite health promotion field, but he also has a long history legacy in the sport and play arena as well. And he put together his ideas in a wonderful book called High Play, Being Above the Game. And and I read through it again recently, and it spoke deeply to my soul as a lifetime athlete, player on teams, and now a coach of more than 25 years. There are a lot of sentiments in there that, that really spoke deeply to me. So George, welcome to the Highway to Well. And I want you to share with us where where did the inspiration and all the ideas for high play come from? Yeah, well, thank you, Derek, for this opportunity to share some of my uh so my thoughts and some of my experiences around this topic. Uh, uh, when you asked me about where it came from, I, I guess the it really came from uh, from my just my early my early life. Um, my my father was a uh, tremendous influence on me. He was my little league coach and my mentor, um, and he always encouraged. Uh, uh, my brother and I and my sister to uh, focus on two things, uh, athletics and also um, uh, scholastic. And um, so as long as I can remember, I was just always playing. You know, we, I grew up in, in a suburb of Buffalo and uh, it was the old, the old thing of, you know, you, you were out playing until the streetlights came on and, um, we were always, you know, my, my neighborhood buddies, we were always doing something if it was uh, tag uh, football or uh, baseball or uh, running. Uh, uh, we were always, always active. And when I was, uh, I'm trying to reflect back on uh, how the high play concept came about is that um, I basically had two, two tracks from a personal development perspective and possibly an occupation. One side of me was I was raised Catholic and I was, I had a few experiences, uh, private experiences uh, that some people would call peak experiences Mm -hmm. related to my faith and which, which sort of prompted me of seriously thinking of becoming a priest. (laughs) And, um, and then the other side was that I was always interested in science, 
And my other track was I wanted, I was thinking about being a doctor. And so this, these two, two paths were uh, weaving in and out throughout my early, my early uh, uh, development, uh, you know, elementary school all the way to high school. And actually the priest thing sort of faded away until I was in college. And uh, I was a little more radical back then, back, you know, growing up during, during the, the, you know, the late 60s, going to college and then, of course, Vietnam and where I was going to school, uh, Ithaca, uh, Ithaca College, uh, Ithaca was uh, a few miles away and the Berrigan brothers were there who were radical Jesuits. So I, I said, These are, this is what priests should do. But mm-hmm. I think the bottom line was around around these two paths, I realized that, um, that there are, there are both healers, priests are healers of souls and doctors are healers of the body. And, uh, against my father's wishes, I decided to go into physical education. (laughs) I felt that, uh, actually I was doing both physical education, even though it's often looked upon as a, an easy way to get a college degree and, and that, and it doesn't take much, much uh, mental muscle, uh, that basically if it's done right, you are a healer of the soul and you can also be a healer of the body. So basically I sort of accomplished that through my education. And within that, I was also, uh, uh, in high school, I was a, uh, I was a, a competitive distance runner, uh, Western New York. I did pretty good, uh, pretty well. And also in the, uh, because we didn't have indoor track, I also was a gymnast. I was a, a pummeled horse competitor and I was one of the top in Western New York and that went to the States, uh, my sophomore year and, and so on. And, and then when I went to college, I, I focused exclusively on, on distance running, uh, cross country, indoor and outdoor. And, um, Within that, uh, within those experiences, uh, the, the the concept of high play was sort of molded, primarily through my experiences of uh, not necessarily competing, but really from practicing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really uh, uh, where these so-called uh, what some people call peak experiences evolved from is not necessarily winning the winning the championship. Uh, running your best 10K, uh, throwing the, you know, uh, uh, catching the miraculous catch and to, to win the game, the football game. It's really those quiet moments or intense moments, depending on the, on the nature of your play, where you um, basically have uh, uh, these, these uh, realizations. Uh, so that, that's really uh, where it came from. And then, you know, parallel with that was uh, I was – I've been blessed to uh, know a number of people throughout my life, especially in my earlier, uh, my, you know, my teens and my twenties, uh, my coaches, of course, uh, but also being a distance runner, George Sheen, Dr. George Sheen was a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they call him the, the running guru, if you will, a philosopher, writer, wrote some best uh, New York best time articles, running and being and so on. And I knew George, we were friends, we share things together, you know, thoughts and, 
And then uh, I also had uh, my, my professor in college uh, when I was working on my master thesis, which was on uh, relaxation training and distance runners using biofeedback. Uh, my review of literature was all focused on uh, was there was very little literature on uh, relaxation training, especially biofeedback, which was very new in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. So I had a, I relied on uh, Zen Buddhism, uh, things around ben, uh, practice of Zen Buddhism, meditation, yoga. And um, my professor gave me a book called uh, Gulf in the Kingdom by Michael Murphy, which uh, is a classic and uh, a fictitious story about uh, this guy goes on his way to India to study meditation and he stops in Scotland. Uh, he's a former uh, uh, state ranked uh, golfer and he meets this character called Shivas Irons and basically uh, within this short round of golf learns about true gravity and uh, the mystery of golf. And uh, uh, when I was working for Xerox, uh, I was running the executive fitness programs. I also was a a competitive runner in Connecticut. I won the state uh, um, AAU marathon championship and I got invited uh, uh, by a hotel chain to go down to the Bahamas to uh, critique a a workshop uh, sponsored by the Esalen Institute, um, which was like one of the uh, bellwethers around self-actualization. And lo and behold, the person, one of the people there just hanging out was Michael Murphy. <laughs> we, spent, we spent like, in fact, we ex- I extended my vacation uh, where we just sat on the beach and talked. And he was interested um, in developing a book or a concept called the Transformation Project, where he 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 discovered that if you looked across different sports, uh, different religions, and also the arts, that when people describe a peak experience, they they use very similar terms. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Transformation Project eventually evolved into a, to a book. It's about the size of a Bible. It's called The Future of the Body. And I, I recommend, if you can find it, just go on Amazon. But it really is a very well-documented uh, 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 reference for basically about these peak experiences uh, mm-hmm. across all de- different kinds of, of, of uh, arts, you know, the painters and the dancers and then, of course, the religion and then athletes. So anyway, that really... Uh, got me going and uh, uh, started getting formulating my plan. And then actually, uh, lo and behold, I used to be a regular attendee at the um, National Wellness Conference up in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was uh, in a local hangout with a, a friend from Australia who also was a Aussie rules football player, very, very well known uh, in Australia. And they, he was uh, named uh, Bill Nettlefold and Bill was in the grand final, which is their equivalent to our Super Bowl. And um, it was the first time, and you're playing in Melbourne stadium, the Olympic stadium, 120,000 people. 
and the long and short of it is they they tied which never happened before in Aussie rules and they didn't have a tiebreaker they had to come back the next week and play it over again mm. and he said that uh, George the magic was lost he mm. said I can close my eyes right now and I can describe every second I was on the field and this was like 20 years after the fact and I looked at him and I said that's high play hmm. so <laughs> that's how it evolved and it took me 20 years to write the book um, and what I what I've tried to do, try to do is basically create an arc about the discovery of play, how we discover play as, as normally as a as a, a youth, and then how play how that play eventually becomes serious. In other words, it's a game now, and mm-hmm. you can score. And then the next arc is where you go beyond the play. You go beyond playing, keeping score, and it, you're playing within the experience, not for the experience, within the experience that if you open yourself up to it, it can, it can show itself. Um, so it's not designed to be a cookbook on how to have a peak experience. It's more of observations, um, just like a Zen master will talk about um, a Zen experience, if you will. What, what are some of the common, common elements, if you will? But the, the, the practitioner, the player has to discover that uh, to himself or herself. Yeah, I, I think that's, there are so many reasons why this resonates with me in a deeply personal way, but also as an advocate for wellness and people investing in their well-being. because, and you've, you've said it multiple times as you're explaining your, your, your pathway to high play through all of your experiences and, and the people you've met and the conversations you've had and the, and the experiences that you've had, but deep in there, in our human condition. And, and one of the great opportunities I had, in college was to study human origins, which was a mind blowing course for me Um, coming up, being raised in the religious South in in Oklahoma. There there were a lot of concepts that were somewhat new to me, but they made a lot of sense. And and part of that was some of our basic human needs. And we had a great discussion within within the scope and frame of anthropology about basic human needs. And there was something about this need for us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves that I have always, it it was a light bulb going on for me that that was what I felt like I was living my experiences through sport and play. And, and for me, it was growing up as a, as a soccer player that I treated it not only as a physical experience, but as a deeply emotional and spiritual experience. And I knew that, and I hadn't termed it that way. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I started thinking of that's why this matters so greatly to me. And then I know we've talked a little bit about it. And and when my playing days were done, I was in, and this is a common thing. We talked about this in, in, in this concept of, basking in reflected glory about how athletes have a hard time transitioning to life after sport. And it isn't just the physical part of not practicing and playing the sport, but it's the emotional and spiritual connection to having that, that, 
peak experience and high play like you're talking about that we haven't, a lot of times we haven't figured out that's the part that's missing. And that is so important and significant to our human condition that it ought to be cultivated and grown. And for me, that was transitioned. I transitioned from that soccer player to a runner. And honestly, I didn't really care so much for running to begin with, but I cared a lot about a couple things. One is that it was a journey of self-discovery and it was a test of what I thought I could do and was capable of doing. It also gave me a time to reflect and process. And that has become significant and one of the most insignificant pillars of my well-being is my time to reflect and process. And for me, running was where I found that. And that that tied all these pieces together. And so when you talk about these peak experiences and high play, I mean, those are, those are part of our, and I, I like, I really love talking a lot about Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and these, human needs that we have from my anthropology background, but this is where it all makes sense and how there is few arenas in our life where actively playing, learning a skill and learning all the different things that sport teaches you that that it becomes, that becomes our real arena for in our pathway, our wellness journey. And, And like you say, defining these defining experiences and the surprise of being like sport allows us the, the, these constant surprises of being. And I, I think that makes great sense and it makes great sense in a very practical way as to why people, you know, even, even in today's world where, you know, you have all these different boutique fitness type experiences, whether that's spin class or whether that's um, yoga or whether that's some type of high end, you know, hit training, high intensity interval training of some kind of boot camp or CrossFit. People love that experience. And I think it begins with these are avenues where people are are finding their peak experiences and their high play. And those are really significant to their own wellness journey. Yeah. I think the one is I as I've been really uh dissecting uh this concept the one thing that um, if, if there's an easier way of not, not necessarily an easier way, but where there's sharing of experiences, it's very rare from a high play perspective. It comes from a team player, mm-hmm. uh, a competitive sport. I, I don't, I, I don't get many uh, uh, examples from football players or soccer players, uh, uh, baseball players, I, 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 they can describe what we would call flow. Mm-hmm. Um, but something beyond that, it's very difficult for them to, number one, open up. <laughs> and uh, number two, I think it's difficult. Whereas the solo athlete, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, from using running as an example, you know, the solitude of the road um, really is a, creates the ground, uh, the, the, the ground by which uh, these, these experiences can, can uh, come out, you know, sprout. Um, you know, the, the uh, extreme sports today, 
uh, in spite of the danger, but, you know, free climbing and, uh, you know, paragliding and, you know, uh, free basing and, you know, th- these, these type of things are just uh, mountain, uh, uh, mountain biking and that. I think these hang gliding, these type of, of activities, again, provide the opportunity for, for athletes to, within their solitude, to, um, to be uh, opened up. Plus, the thing is, is that there's not much thinking per se. And I'm, 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 I might get some, some emails on this. <laughs> it really is a, a letting go. Because if you overthink things, and especially in these extreme sports, I think, I think they would agree on this. You're dead. Uh, so it's basically trusting your body, trusting your practice, and and letting this letting it happen versus thinking through things, and especially when things happen so quickly. Um, but at the same time, it, it it can allow to have these other experiences take place. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's a very interesting journey around you know how you choose your sport and how you practice your sport, um, and wh- what do you expect from your sport or your play uh, that really determines if, uh, uh, in my opinion, if if you are going to be uh, open to uh, having something more. Yeah, well, and you talk about that too in your book. There's this you have these combination of chapters that kind of work together where you have this, that, that idea of connection. And so there's several different ways we can talk about connection. There's the social connection of your teammates. There's the feeling connected to the experience of your sport and like, like feeling connected through flow and having that um, experience of having done the fundamentals so much to the point that it becomes your normal activity. And, and so you're, feeling very connected in the moment of a game. And so I, as a team, as a sport, you know, as a player in team sports and growing up in soccer, I think you're, you're right on point is there are these experiences that are wonderful, but in, and I can remember specific games and where I felt like I, as a player was really maximizing everything that I could bring to the, to the table. But the rules, it's kind of like those rules and restrictions of, of the team environment then don't allow for what that solo athlete is, is discovering in, in their path. And you talk about that, the value of, of this, of solitude. And, and, you know, I, I liken it to when I, when I was getting into ultra marathoning, for the most part, you're, you're kind of by yourself or with a couple people as you're running and, and then every five miles, you re-enter wor- the world again, and you get into the, your rest stop areas. And they're like many camps that have been set up, and there's tons of food. But when I when I transition from doing kind of your traditional street road marathon, where everyone's burning the pavement and may or may not pick up water, no one's really stopping. Everyone's on a direct path to the finish line, and you get into ultra marathoning on trails, and it's a different world. When you get to those rest stops after you've been in your solitude, you realize you're surrounded by others that are experiencing exactly what you're experiencing, and it feels like a team. You don't know any of these people, but there's a familiarity in the way you look at each other, nod, smile, greet, 
and you see people in different stages of pain and suffering and happiness. And it makes you feel like you're a part of that something special with them, which absolutely gets you through the toughest stages when you get back out on the trails. You remember, this is mine, but I'm not alone. And that is so critical in that, in that journey. Yeah. Yeah, I think you said on that. I was going to say with the, these uh, comrades, if if you will, um, they they are within their own journey doing that fifty miler. Um, I, I would say also, but the marathoners, uh, especially the beginners in that, are same thing within their within their journey to just to finish uh, their first one or whatever. Whereas you know, being a competitor, a troop competitor, that's a completely different plane, mm-hmm. uh, different motives, of course. Um, uh, you know, running for the prize um, is is very different, um, in my opinion. But um, yeah, I, I it's sport really allows a, a lot of and play playing. Playing your sport, I think that's that's a, I think that might be an interesting concept to explore further. Not for this, not for this podcast, but playing <laughs> your sport versus doing your sport mm-hmm. um, is the differentiation. Um, uh, where doing is more serious, whereas playing is 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 really exploring and and having the opportunity to make mistakes to play with the edges, mm-hmm. expand the boundaries and so on. Um, I, I didn't mention there's one, there's one book that uh, also influenced me. Uh, it's by James Carsey. It's called Finite and Infinite Games. Looking at, looking at play as, as a, a possibility. Uh, but Carsey, I used to give the book out. I used to... I used to go to into when I lived in Northern Virginia. I would go up to Georgetown uh, in D.C. every weekend, and uh, after my after a divorce, my first after my divorce, if you will, and I would just go up there and I'd go to the bookstores and that. And then there was a Kramer's bookstore. I would buy buy all their all their high uh, their finite infinite game inventory out, and I would send it to friends. And um, very interesting concept. He's a prof- uh, Carsey, uh, I think he's retired now, professor of religion at New York University. And uh, he says there's two kind of players. There's finite players that you play for the prize, uh, whereas infinite players play, uh, play for surprise. And that, uh, you know, finite players play within, within the rules, with the confines of the particular game. Whereas infinite players plays that the game continues even after you leave the game. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very fascinating. But I gave it to George Sheen, and I remember where uh, he was doing a talk for us uh, once. I picked him up at the airport, and I said, "Well, did you read the book?" <laughs> he goes, "He goes, hell, I tried to. I read a paragraph, and I had to put it down and really think it through." and for george to say that it was it was it was funny and but very very good book and an interesting thing was i uh some other books that carsey wrote it it turns out that he was a a a collegiate high school and collegiate wrestler Uh 
And I actually put it in the high playbook that he, he actually gets it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Athletic experience. Again, yeah. a, solo, a solo athlete, right? Yeah. And all those hours sweat on the mat. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, this gets into, there are layers of this concept where, so, and I, I coach team sports, but it is a hard concept to get players to, to get past the score. And I, I oftentimes refer to the score as a teaser because a score of any match isn't truly indicative of where we are as a, as a unit, as a unit moving forward, it's, it's a signpost, but it's, it's just an, it's just an indicator. And sometimes, especially high school players, it's hard to understand that the score isn't the end all. So when something happens, the game ends, there's a score on the scoreboard, our work has already, and it's been going on, but our work begins again and it's a different, and all, all the whole context of your life is immediately changed because the next game is really not going to matter much in reflecting on that previous game, other than the obvious parts of are we growing, are we learning, how's our effort, all these different pieces of the game that you're trying to put together. But scores are teasers. They don't, they don't give you what ultimately you're seeking for and that is a challenging concept to to get through in that team and that team environment. And that I think speaks greatly to the opportunity in failure. And I know you write a lot about it. And I loved in your book when you started talking about the gluteal hump method on learning to grow through failure and how significant. And I'm not sure, and especially in the team sports setting. So I can on a personal level, like I've done really great things. I've enjoyed my, my running. Um, but I've also had great failures and those have really challenged me far more than any run I finished were the runs that I didn't finish or I dropped out. And I know the last, the last, um, really long distance event I tried was a 50 K and I had, run a 50k the year before and felt amazing and successful in that and then the next year i decided to do it again i didn't train as hard and mentally i could tell that i wasn't in the same place i was that year prior and when i got on the trail i quickly learned i can't cheat i can't cheat this race i can't i can't get through this just because i've been here before there's a lot of things going on and and I halfway through the race, I had some stomach cramping and I was dehydrated. It was a pretty hot day. All those things I've dealt with before, those are normal issues in ultras. But this time I just decided I'd had enough. And I turned in my tag and went and one of my friends was crewing and we decided to go have dinner. And then I figured I'd get home for my to my family in a reasonable hour instead of in the middle of the night. And as I'm driving home, I I felt like a colossal failure. And, and that's a really hard place for anyone to be in. And I just felt like if, if I hate running, then I really am not sure really who I am to some degree. Like it is such a spiritually important thing for me and then it's gone. But 
I had to think about rediscovering myself. And so I started doing a lot more cross training and, and CrossFit. And then after, after a couple of years, I, I ran a marathon this past fall and I felt amazing. I felt renewed. I felt like a reborn athlete. And so then I decided I'd embark on this, um, on a 50 miler this spring to test that out, to see how, how far have I come as a person because of that failure. And so that gluteal hump method, that is a, that is absolutely a cornerstone. And and I'm not sure in the team sport setting today that we feel as comfortable about it as we should. Yeah. Well, the gluteal the, in the book, I describe a professor, a uh, guy named Fred Holloway. We called him Prof in my college. He was recognized as a dean of Eastern soccer. He was a, the, and he had a philosophy, he, two things. Number one, he felt that as a coach, it, once the game started, his job was over. And a lot of people criticized him for that because they thought he, they, they, uh, my college should have won more, more uh, should have won some NCAA, you know, Division three championships and that. He just sat in his lounge chair watching the game and let his assistant coach take over. And then the other thing he talked about was, and he, you know, he also taught activity courses as part of the, the, the physical education curriculum. And he, he was teaching stunts and tumbling. <laughs> and and prof was close to 80 years old when you know my senior year and uh he's you know basically he said if you know if you don't fall on your on your butt enough times the gluteal bump method um you're not learning and the critical thing is the babel once you fall and fall on your ass you get up and you do it again Mm-hmm. And the critical thing is what did you learn? And I, I go on, uh, Derek, going back to your, your thing about the, the game, the end of the game and what your athletes, I think there's two questions that every coach should ask is, is within a team format is as an, as an individual, what did you learn today? Mm-hmm. Game? And then secondly, or, you know, might, you might want to flip it is as a team. And this is a team discussion is that what did we learn today through this game? And almost, you know, what what's done in Vegas stays in Vegas type of thing that stays in the locker room. But what did we learn today? Um, I don't think coaches do that. I think coaches tell people, tell their athletes what they what their mistakes were, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And also, the worst the worst thing a coach can do to a kid or a father can do to their child, because I went through this, is the word but. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was uh, my, my dad, God, God rest him and God bless him, wonderful man. But everything that we did, either scholastic, uh, athletically and scholastically, was always uh, had a but in it. And I was thinking about writing a book called "But Is a Four Letter Word," <laughs> because, and, and and literally, you know, George, you ran a good race today, but you did a good, you know, gymnastics, whatever. You got a, you know, you got a B plus, whatever. But, and it took. I think this is common. And it uh, finally, literally, on my my dad's deathbed, a couple of days before he died, we were alone, and I asked him. 
And he, he said, you know, he said, well, I thought that was the only way for you guys to improve. Mm. Instead of just letting it, you did a good job. You did, ran a good race is that mm. there was always room for improvement for you to, to evolve as a person, as an athlete. Well, we didn't like the butts. And I think that's, I think there's a lot of, a lot of parents and a lot of coaches who, who do that. Um, yeah. And I, I see that in, in my soccer community where coaches, I think, and it's probably the case on cross the board in most sports is coaches feel like they're in the role of expert. And so they are the ones that are either they do know, and sometimes they're arrogant and they just think they know everything. But I think sometimes even the ones that aren't that arrogant still think they're supposed to have all the answers. And so they start spouting out everything without having the players be involved in the process. And, and that's something that I learned as a coach a long time ago is this isn't my sport, it's their sport. I'm really just a facilitator for them to get better. And much like, you know, you talk about prof, but when the game starts, his coaching ends, like I'm not too far from that. I think the game, there's, there isn't much that in the game other than some tactical changes or some reminders and the players should be comfortable in the game environment because your training has built them to be smart and creative problem solving. And I build a lot of practices based on failure. I want my players to fail a lot during their practice sessions so that when they get to the game, everything is easier for them. And that, that helps for me, that helps them. But I go back to your point too, about, about the word, but so I think coaches also fear letting the players have a voice and that I learned uh, a few years ago. And, and this is something that I've done annually since this lesson. I, I removed the role of the traditional hierarchical captain. And I did that because I had some seniors that I weren't confident had the best interest of the team in mind. And over the years, typically your seniors were your captains. They were supposed to be the most experienced, the most respected, and they know all, they know how, they know the path to greatness. And I was convinced I had a group of seniors that weren't like that. And my best players and the ones that were the most mature were actually my freshmen and sophomores. And so in order to not disrupt the entire process, I just got rid of the whole idea of a captain and I just created a different leadership model that was flat so that every player that was part of the var, part of our team experience had an ownership. And I discovered that year was one of the best years I'd had as a coach and my team succeeded and they succeeded because the younger guys felt like it was their team too. And they weren't being dictated to, and they had a voice. And then when I got to coach at the college level, we had a, group of players that were kind of the same way, the senior group and the freshman first year, first and second year students, they didn't get along. They, they almost hated each other. So it would have been hard for them to be leaders if, if it was a top to bottom structure. So I spoke with my other coach and we agreed that we'd just get rid of captains and we ended up having the best year in a long time for the history of UWSP here for the women's soccer team. And we ended up almost getting we, we made it to the sweet 16 of the 
NCAA tournament, which was a, a really deep run. And, and it, I think a lot of that had to do with just deconstructing that leadership model. So we allowed the players to have more voice in the direction of the team and that they shared it and it wasn't dictated to them. And I think that that's where parents unintentionally or sometimes intentionally, you know, like your story with your father, I was, I grew up in this hyper-competitive soccer environment in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And a lot of us, by the time we were 14, we had left this, we were in this high level premier league environment. I had a Yugoslavian coach that would, <laughs> he was the, he was the best coach I ever had, but he would yell at us all the time. And I didn't understand a lot of what he was trying to do, but he was also the kind of coach that would have us run after we beat a team 10 to nothing because he didn't like the way we played. And when you're 12, you're kind of confused as what the end goal is. Because again, it goes back to the score being the teaser is what is our what is our evaluation for success? For him, it was never the score. And I appreciated that once I started coaching, I didn't appreciate it when I was 12. But when when our, our parents were, were constantly on us about, about, okay, that was a great game, but what else could you do? None of us wanted to hear that. And we all ended up leaving that environment. And later in high school, we all kind of gravitated towards a more healthier playing environment. And in a way that was our way and definitely my way of taking my ownership back from the game that I loved when I felt like it was, it was being co-opted by all these different parts. And so I, I really, I agree. I, I hope you, I hope you get to writing out, but as a four letter word, because I would be one of the first people to buy and read that book. <laughs> yeah. But I, those are, those are those defining experiences for us though, as, as young athletes, as they mold us and shape us. And for a lot of us, it tells us this isn't how we want to be when we get into a, either our life as a player and athlete, or when we become coaches. And I, I've been keen on making sure that, that I don't let that type of mentality seep up in our program. And and it's hard, but I think that comes back to a lot of, and you know, there's a concept here and wanted to get to it and make sure we talked about it is, is the valuing of winning and losing. And, and I know you have a great quote from Pat Summit in your book about nothing improves a team or a person more than losing. And that forces that self-examination and it reveals flaws and it inspires something better. And that's where to get back to this thread a little bit is I, I think that value, there's a such a strong value in failure and losing and we fear that. And that is, that is a complicated issue. In, and I think in developing athletes today, it's complicated because of, of what we are trying to value and looking at the long game versus the short game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the long, the long, uh, the long term, the long game is is your life. Long, long after you leave the field, your chosen field, and uh, you, you just reminded me of a, a story back to the the long game. Is when I worked for Xerox, uh, uh, David Kearns, who was the uh, CEO, uh, Xerox, and wonderful man, just one of the greatest pe- people, uh, persons I ever met in my life, and. Uh, 
believed heavily in education. And I trained him for the New York City Marathon, and I paced him the New York City Marathon. But I remember we were a sponsor of the aerobics festival down in Houston at the Cooper Clinic. And, uh, and they also had this, this executive uh, competition, uh, and they had Frank Shorter come in, and he was, he was like the, you know, the, the head athlete and, and so on. But I remember uh, he invited me down to, to be down there because we were, we were getting a national award from, from, uh, uh, from Cooper for our, our worksite programs. And I remember uh, they just – uh, Xerox just uh, appointed this young guy to, uh, to be president of a division, and I was standing by Kearns being interviewed uh, by you know the business press down in Dallas. And basically, the long and short of it is that you know Kearns said we know he's going to make mistakes because they were questioning about his lack of uh, experience. This guy, mm-hmm. he goes, we know he's going to make mistakes. We just hope they're not that serious. <laughs> the point is they expected him. You know, they, the leadership, expected this new leader to stumble a little bit mm-hmm. as part of the learning process mm-hmm. to be a stronger leader and to, to guide this division. And I think that that is uh, something that often is, is uh, you know, one strike and you're out is in some cultures that, you know, that, that exists versus where, you know, you stumble, you fall, you fall, you know, the gluten bump method again. Um, mm. uh, and you become a stronger, a stronger player for life. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and I think that the sport helps you, helps us uh, make that transition uh, into our careers, into our parenting, uh, uh, whatever, um, that, uh, you know, we're not perfect. Yeah. And well, it, this, this begins to take us into, there's a whole chapter in, in your book that I am so glad that you included. And it is a, it's one of the most difficult things as a coach to be thinking about and handling but it's your your chapter on the bench and so for any of us that grow up playing team sports you know the bench is a place for various different things and it has a lot of um it has such an important role in teams and it's misunderstood misvalued a lot of times more often than not it's it's undervalued as a place of learning and usually it's thought of as a place for demotion or um a a place where punishment yeah punishment and and that that is something that is that is a whole conceptually that is difficult to challenge because we have sports are part of an environment and in that environment you have friends and family and parents that are watching. And if you're not playing, every one of them is thinking, why is, why is someone not playing? And some people are self-aware enough to understand that it may be a developmental piece. It may be a tactical issue. It may be an injury issue. It may be 
several different really practical reasons as to why someone isn't playing. But it also, it also, as you point out, is if it's viewed as punishment, it makes it a hard place and it usually eats at the culture of a team and it becomes a negative place. But when, when you have the, when you can really evolve that concept of the bench as a pew, like you talk about, and I love that concept. And I want to, want to hear how you arrived at that, but it, that you talk about it being a place for the player to worship and reflect on the mystery and wonder of the game unfolding before them. I think that is the most significant. It is one of my two or three favorite threads through this whole, through your whole book and through any of this, because as a current coach, it is such an incredibly important piece. And it's something that I am, I'm going to implement in this next season as I come into coaching this next fall is to really make sure that that is a focal point of our learning and culture, but that this, this whole avenue of the bench, I, I thought was wonderful. I want to hear your thoughts on, on how did you, how did you conceptually get there with that? Well, personally, you know, the, the first off, that was the first topic I wrote about. <laughs> of all them, that was the first one I did because it, it did uh, resonate with me because uh, you know, I was one, you know, I was a little kid. Uh, they usually sat the you know and pick up games and we have a thing about you know choosing you know choosing sides as another topic in the book. Yeah. But basically, um, you know, I was normally the last kid to be picked, and if I, when I was picked, I wasn't playing. I was I was observing, and you know, it, that was demeaning to me. Um, in a sense, it was indirect punishment and and this was peer you know you know as early on this was peer generated it wasn't a coach sure right it was the kids you played with who sure. said well you're not you're not as good as us you know you know you're not going to play right now um so that evolved but the more i reflected on it um you know definitely you know watching uh, other sports uh, definitely, you know, being taken out of the game and sit down, you know, that's a punishment. Uh, the other thing, of course, is like my example is that you're not good enough. You're, you're not a starter. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, but the other thing is being able to observe if you are a gifted um, and, and it gives you a chance for rest, but it also gives you a chance to observe the game that you've chosen and be thankful that you're part of this, whatever your chosen sport is, that you're part of this, uh, this play, you're part of this movement, the coordinated movement. Um, that's a, can, can, you know, very, can be a very uh, choreographed dance in some instances. And you can just sit back and awe and watch this evolve and be thankful that you're part of it. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the bench uh, has multiple meanings. It can be very bitter. It can be uh, very um, uh, um, elevating. Also, the other thing is, is that, you know, you, t- uh, you, you hear some anecdotal stuff from, from uh, coaches 
uh, that when they were in their sport, they sat, you know, they listened. They listened when they were sitting on the bench. They listened to the coaches, what the mm-hmm. coaches were, were instructing to do. And so that was also their, their, uh, their desk, okay, if you will, of learning, um, you know, the, the dynamics of coaching, observing, listening, and then remembering and being able to apply later in life. Um, so, uh, yeah, the bench, uh, bench is a very special part of that book of the book. Yeah. And I think you hit on that, that last point about the desk um, for learning that I, it, if a player is in that position and they're paying attention, then they're usually more intimately aware of what the coaches are seeking because of that. And if they, then they have a choice to make when they enter the game, you know, do I apply what I've been hearing or am I, is my mentality that I've been punished? So I haven't listened to a word the coaches said, so I'm just going to go out there and do what I think's right. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that's a step that, that doesn't help them. Yeah. The other thing about the bench, which um, I didn't put in the book was, you know, a, a personal thing was that because of my, my own experiences, do I love team sport? I love playing team sports, pick up games and that, but mm-hmm. uh, I knew the reality of, you know, getting into formal, you know, once I got into, you know, into uh secondary, you know, and, you know, JV or varsity type of sports is that I, I vowed to myself, I would not be in a situation where I had to, uh, uh, be on the bench mm-hmm. that, uh, because of, uh, of myself being compared to other players, if I'm good enough or, or not. And that gravitated me towards solo sports. So thus the gymnast, the, the runner, okay, my, my, my results, my talent or lack of it was solely on my shoulders. And so I didn't have to have uh, some kind of, of uh, subjective judgment by a coach, if you will, mm-hmm. to make the decision if I played or I didn't play. Um, it was, it was, or, you know, you know, because other players influence your play on a on a team on a team plane. Uh, whereas if you're a solo, your your numbers, your times, your distances, whatever, um, uh, stand on their own. Um, so that's that. That was the, one of the major reasons why. And besides having talent, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I gravitated to uh, uh, to to solos. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I, I and I can tell you as growing up as a team sport player, and and you touched on this with Carsey's work and that infinite and um, the finite and infinite plays. You know, if you grow up and you're always in these finite settings and bound by these restrictions and rules, there's something really freeing about the the opportunity to just do it on your own. And for me, like I think that also echoes my upbringing watching Rocky four thousands of times and movies like vision quest where there's this very solo training piece to those developments. And in each of those instances, it's that story arc of 
turning yourself into something greater by training and the whole process of practicing. And this also ties into my love of Joseph Campbell's work and you go to the forest and you go hide and then you come out and after your metamorphosis. And, and for me, that's even in my team sport, my favorite memories are actually more about training than they are about games. So I knew that's why when my playing days were numbered, I started gravitating towards these other things where I could get that training feeling and make it part of my everyday schedule. Like I'm what's on my calendar. Is there a race coming up? Is it, what am I training for? Like, you know, I, people ask me that all the time. What are you training for? Like, I don't know everything. I'm training for life. <laughs> but I mean, I see, you know, that, that concept of that finite and infinite there, it's, it's so, it's such an important part to make sure that we, I feel like that we should be focusing on those, those infinite pieces, even for athletes in sports is to, is to help them pursue that through the training. You talk a lot about, you know, the preparation and fundamentals and, and the sweat and all the critical components to being good at something. And those are all critical no matter what that good at something is, if it's art, music, sport, play, um, they all, and then they all turn into things like being a better husband, being a better father, being a better friend and being a better leader in our work and in community settings. So those are all part of that same concept. But I think that's, those are so true about the, about the training and, and then the responsibility for you is it's left to you when you're in that individual sport, even though maybe calculating team points, it still comes back to you and what you've done. Yeah. And I, I don't want to say that uh, it's sour grapes that I was a better team player than, you know, the, than people thought, you know, I, I wasn't that great of a team player. I enjoyed it, but you know, the, and I think that, um, you know, again, the, the bench uh, sort of taught me that lesson, um, even though I still, you know, you, as a kid, you still have a higher impre- uh, uh, impression of yourself, your abilities. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, actually, as an adult as well. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I think that, uh, again, that was uh, the lesson for me was that gravitated, that, that gravitated me to the solo, and that made me a better person. I mean, you know, it was a gift that I discovered my, uh, these these uh, talents I had, you know, uh, you know, within a small, not the Olympic size, but I, you know, I won marathons and, you know, and you know this and that, but you know, it it, it was very special to me. And uh, but I think the thing back to you know, you know one of your points around training, uh, you know, where it really comes around to. Uh, practice with a purpose mm-hmm. and that, you know, understanding that fundamentals are, should never be neglected. Um, uh, repetition, uh, not for its own sake, but mindful repetition um, are very critical, you know, and practice, you know, is, you know, uh, is a, is a gateway to spiritual practice in my opinion. Mm-hmm. If, if it's if it's done properly, if it's mindful, and you know this whole thing about mindfulness today, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mindful practice uh, uh, not only you know creates those those highways. You know, you take 
you take uh, dirt roads and make them into super highways, you know, from a neuromuscular synapse type of thing where you're, you know, you're becoming more neuromuscularly efficient and so on. But beyond that is that the, the mind is, is being trained uh, as well. And that can open up a, a lot of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, those are the, the foundational pieces. So critical for everything. And in the fundamental part, it, it, as you're telling that, I'm just, I have flashbacks to my Yugoslavian coach running us through fundamentals for a whole hour every day of our training and no one liking it. But after years and seeing some of those players grow up, one of them um, ended up being on our World Cup soccer team and had a professional career that's quite successful. And a lot of those players went on to play in various different collegiate levels and, and fundamental, fundamental soundness was really a part of that as much as, as much as we weren't as appreciative of it at 12 and 13 and 14 as we should have been. It's so critical to success. And your successful players you'll, you'll find are the ones that in many cases are the ones you know, for instance, after a competition uh, or after, you know, I'm a golf a golfer, a very poor golfer, but <laughs> I don't practice. Uh, I just get there and, you know, go onto the tee box and I wonder why I'm not playing well. I, I'm not, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't evolved. Um, but the, the good players, they'll, they'll do a round and they'll, they'll be hitting balls for another hour after they, they're done. And... Uh, and before, you know, warming up and so on. And, the, you know, in any sport you'll find uh, the, these folks sticking around uh, and, and again, uh, honing their skills mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and trying to improve. So, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting world of, of uh, that we play in. Yeah. Yeah. And I know a lot of your influences here, George, as as we get to closing up here, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about how also I know there's a beautiful story you have in your book and I know family are, those are those anchors for you and and your inspiration a lot. And you write about that often. Um, But as we close up here, I wanted, wanted you to have a chance to tell us a little story and talk about, what you see is next on where we should go from here after high play. Okay. Um, so are we talking about the Eltoy tin or is that? Yeah. 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 Well, it's my, uh, my brother, Mike, my younger brother, Mike was a hell of an athlete. Um, he, uh, he could do anything and he didn't play soccer until his senior, uh, until he went to college. Mm-hmm. Was a baseball player, volleyball, and, and so on. Tenant, good, great eye-hand coordination. So I always looked up to Mike. And um, so the long and short of it is, like, uh, he was diagnosed with uh, uh, liver cancer. He was a research chemist for an oil company, and obviously, uh, he got exposed it's earlier in his career. And he went to dental school, got his in Oklahoma, okay. um, and. Uh, he became a dentist. He was assistant uh, dentist for the Redskins when he moved back to you know back to Northern Virginia. Oh wow! But anyway, he uh, uh, 
when I found out that uh, he uh, right away, I drove up, you know, the hundred miles of fuse and uh, when he was diagnosed and he was in his bedroom and watching TV, just sort of like in a daze. And I said to him, uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to go play Pebble beach. He was a hell of a golfer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he looks up at me and he goes, uh, let's go hit some balls. Mm-hmm immediately. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we finally, uh, we were able to arrange a trip to, uh, to Pebble beach. Uh, it was like a year wait in most cases. And we had some connections. So there was four of us went out there and, uh, literally the, the, the week before, uh, we were supposed to play, um, Mike was in a clinical trial at, in, at NIH and, uh, uh, he couldn't even raise his right arm. And uh, he was hospitalized, and the doctor comes in and because uh, how you doing, Mr. Pfeiffer, Dr. Pfeiffer, and Mike. Mike immediately goes, "I got a 10:30 tee off time at Pebble Beach next <laughs> Thursday, and I'm going to play." <laughs> he says, "Okay, you know," and uh, miraculously, it, he got a reprieve. We went out there. He, we played four rounds. He shot in the 80s. And that was the last time he played. Uh-huh. So he died uh, he, uh, about five months later, six months later. And um, he was cremated. So uh, when I was talking to his wife about what, you know, what we wanted to do, I said, well, I'd like to take a little bit back to uh, Pebble and put mm-hmm. it on the 18th hole. And this was right after, this was 2001, right after 9-11. Mm-hmm. The whole issue about you know carrying powder or whatever I, we, we were so hypersensitive to that. Yeah. So I said, okay, when I drive up to DC to fly out, we'll we'll come to some kind of some kind of conclusion, you know, uh, solution. Mm-hmm. And uh, I live in Charlottesville and uh, Virginia, and uh, uh, my my uh, truck was uh, in this alley and um, back alley, which was backed up to a restaurant. So I'm still trying to figure out how to take Mike with me. And then uh, I literally wake up in the middle, middle of the night. And the first thought is Eltoid Tim, mm. <laughs> which I had in my briefcase. And I said, yeah, that's flat. I can carry him around in my back pocket, blah, blah, blah. So solutions solved. So I'm rushing to, to get to, uh, to get on the road. And I'm halfway down the stairs and I go, Eltoy tin, I'm going to carry my brother in an Eltoy tin. And I go, no, it's not going to happen. And I go around the back of the building and there's a bunch of garbage cans in that. And what's sitting on top of one of the garbage cans, but an Eltoy tin. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, Mike has spoken, took that with me. Long short of it is Mike, uh, Mike is now dispersed uh, part of them on the 18th tee box over the, the sign there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've made a point of, uh, and my dad passed away a year after him. So I had to go back and uh, refresh, <laughs> refresh <laughs> the spot. But the boys are in different locations around the country where we have uh, shared uh, golf venues or, or have watched it on TV. Yeah. And which will remain unnamed. <laughs> but, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, that was something special. I mean, you know, something connected to, to uh, you know, our love of sport, 
Mm-hmm. And just, I don't believe that that is something that was uh, coincidental. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So it's a great, it's a great story uh, that I share with people. Well, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that's the, those are those connection points that fulfill our lives. And despite of loss and tragedy is taking that opportunity to celebrate all the great things that we've learned and sports and player are central to that. Yeah. And the one thing I do, I still have, you know, I still have the, still a little bit of the boys, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I, I have the Altoy tin and what I do is, um, I carry him, you know, I, you know, I carry him around uh, either my bag or if it's a really a, a, a one, you know, a really special course, uh, I carry him in my back pocket. So they're playing with me, mm. you know, and I was fortunate <laughs> enough to play Augusta a few years ago. So they, they played Augusta with me, you know, and uh, in other places, you know, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's something to that connection. Mm-hmm. And being a part of something bigger than ourselves. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you, George. And when I, what's next on, so what's, what, what's coming next for high play? I, I think you had mentioned that you're putting together a second edition. I got it. Yeah. Second edition. And then, um, also thinking about, uh, a called, uh, seven rules of high play. Mm-hmm. But condense things down to something that can be used uh, by athletes. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps a, a uh, another one of specific seven rules for coaching high play. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's two things. And then also uh, thinking about some events uh, where we can uh, uh, athletes and parents can share uh, the. Uh, the sports experience in a, in a safe and fun environment. Mm. That sounds wonderful. I'm excited. And I hope that, that, uh, I can't wait to see your seven, your seven tenants there for both players, athletes, and also coaches. I know we, we are always looking for ways to better communicate our experiences and organize ourselves as coaches to help maximize all the things that we see in, in throughout, throughout the entirety of, of your high play book here. I, again, I chapter by chapter was reminded of all the experiences I've had as a player and as an athlete. And, and I think that that is a beautiful way to think about my own well being and my own pathway to wellness. So thank you. And thank you again for your time today and, and sharing all of these experiences. And I look forward, I can't, I, I can't wait. I feel like we should have multiple podcasts coming up to just continue to talk about all the different bases that we, we need to, to, to really exhaust all these ideas. Well, I would love to in the future. That would be great. Yeah. Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah. Thanks, George. And we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Good luck. Thank you. Yep. Yep. Bye-bye.